Please turn to John chapter 3, verse 1. While you're turning, a man noticed one morning that his name was in the death column of the local newspaper. In indignation, he called the newspaper office and asked them why they put his name in the obituary column. The man on the other side of the line said, Yeah, just a second, I'll go see about it. He came back and said, Yeah, you're right. We have made a mistake. But don't worry. In the paper tomorrow, we'll put your name in the birth column. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Okay. Well, we're in the section still concerning the public ministry of, of God the Son. And going to be there for a while until chapter 12. This week, it's still the Passover season at 80.30, and Jesus is still in Jerusalem for the feast. Remember last week, he cleansed the temple and confronted the authorities. And um, At the end of that section, remember how John explained that Jesus knew what was in men's hearts. And man is mentioned several times there. Well, we start off in chapter 3 since the original text didn't have any chapter divisions, with, now there was a man. So that kind of carries it through and links it there. This week we have Jesus' first lengthy discourse in John's Gospel, and there will be several of them. This one is with an influential rabbi, Nicodemus, when he paid him a visit. First thing we have, of course, is Nicodemus' greeting. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now the Pharisee party was one of the two main religious parties in first century Judaism. There were the Pharisees, their name means separatists, and uh, kind of like our Puritans, I guess you'd say. And there were the Sadducees, which paradoxically their name means righteous ones. I, I question that they really were, but that was the name that they had. Those two main sects. And the Sadducees basically were the aristocracy. They tended to be rich, by and large, and they controlled pretty much the priesthood. Not that everyone was a Sadducee if you were rich or a priest. Uh, the Sadducees believed in only the law, only the five books of Moses. They didn't accept the prophets. <coughs> Consequently, they didn't accept things like angels, the resurrection, most of the scripture. That put them at odds with the Pharisees who accepted all of those things. They believed in the complete Bible. They believed in angels, uh, they believed in supernatural happenings, they, be- they believed in the resurrection of the dead. In that sense, they were a lot closer to you know, what we would believe than the Sadducees were. They also, though, believed in the validity of oral tradition alongside the scripture. That uh, they actually have a, a legend that God handed down the oral law to Moses the sayings, as well as what he wrote down in Scripture. So they have authoritative rabbinical sayings alongside the Bible, and that was the beginning of their undoing. Because over time, the sayings of various rabbis began to take on equal weight as the Scriptures. Our tradition says. Now, of course, I don't want to throw stones at them too much, because Christians get into that too. 
But it's always, always a dangerous trend, isn't it, when you start exalting the traditions of man. And that was the problem for the Pharisees. When the Jewish revolt against Rome in AD 66 through 73 happened, it brought an end, basically, to both the temple and the Sadducees. That was the end of the line for the Sadducees, because they were so tightly tied to the temple establishment. The Pharisees, though, survived. The Pharisees formed the nucleus of what later became Orthodox Judaism. So if you want to talk to a Pharisee today, find an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and you have one. They're essentially the same set of beliefs. So there was a man of the Pharisees. Nicodemus was his name. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Or as another translation has, a member of the Jewish ruling council. What John is telling us is he's a, a, mem- he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, we're indebted to John for knowing anything about Nicodemus in the New Testament because John's the only one that mentions him. And possibly because his interview with Jesus happened fairly early on and John was among the first disciples called. We know, however, a fair amount about him because it so happens that he's mentioned a great deal in Jewish writings. He was a very prominent person. We know his daughter's name, Miriam. We know his daughter, that he had a daughter-in-law, so he presumably had a son as well, though we don't know his name. They're all mentioned in Jewish writings. He was one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem. A philanthropist, a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the council of 70 elders that ruled Jerusalem under the Romans. He was, along with Gamaliel and Joseph of Arimathea, the only three members of that council to receive favorable mention in the New Testament. Only three. He even stood up for Jesus and argued that they were trying him unjustly. That's unique. They got him an angry retort, but <laughs> nonetheless, does our law condemn anybody before we've had a hearing and you know that sort of thing? And, and they rebuked him. He, along with Joseph Arimathea, buried Jesus' body after the crucifixion, which was a courageous thing to do. John says explicitly that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer. He doesn't make that claim about Nicodemus, interestingly enough. So we don't really know where he was at. Now, he's one of these people from history I wouldn't be surprised to bump into in heaven, but I don't know for sure about him. Joseph of Arimathea tells us definitely was. Was another Sanhedrin member. He advocated peace with the Romans during the first Jewish rebellion. He was not one of the zealots. He saw where things were going and wanted to head it off, but failed to do so. And after the Roman victory, Jewish writings relate that his daughter and daughter-in-law were destitute, so apparently he lost all his wealth in the war. And that's where he drops off the pages of history. We don't really know much about him from there. But... He came to Jesus by night. Now, Jesus was staying in Jerusalem. Nicodemus came to visit him that, at night. Why did he do that at night? A couple of reasons I can think of. One of them which wouldn't be a credit to Nicodemus, and the other one which is pretty reasonable. It may have been out of concern for his reputation. I mean, he's a prominent Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You know, this might not go well if, if, uh, if he were seen visiting Jesus. The other possibility, which would be a little more noble, is he may have just wanted an opportunity to talk to Jesus apart from the crowds. And the crowds were around him constantly throughout his day, so the way to do that would be to see him at night. 
So he said, said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher. Nicodemus is very polite in his address to Jesus. This influential Pharisaical rabbi addresses Jesus as rabbi, by the way, which means literally, my great one. So, yeah, he was very respectful of Jesus, even though Jesus had not been to formal rabbinical training. Yeah, I think I think being the son of God, we can exempt him from seminary, don't you? Yeah, but <laughs> but anyway, he had he didn't have that background, and yet the. Uh, the Pharisee, the Pharisee Nicodemus addresses him as rabbi. He acknowledges that Jesus had come from God as a teacher. And the thing that led him to this conclusion were the signs that he did. Now remember back when he cleansed the temple, he was confronted by an angry group of Jewish authorities who demanded to see a sign. And Jesus said what? Nope. Now, basically, he said, you're going to get one, the only one you're going to get. You know, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his body. That's why you wish you had a video camera sometimes instead of the text, because I can see Jesus say, tear this temple down, and in three days I'll build it up. And they still didn't get it. But that was his reaction to those who were closed-minded and hostile. But it says he worked many miracles, many signs, during the Passover. And therefore there's always enough evidence for the open-minded. But for the closed-minded, it's always not the only thing you're going to get is the resurrection. That's it. Now, Nicodemus believed that Jesus was a teacher. But the thing that's missing here, the thing that many in the crowd had grasped, was his messianic meaning. The messianic meaning to these signs, what the signs pointed to. At this point, he's just calling Jesus good teacher. One is almost tempted to go off into C.S. Lewis and talk about the trilemma of the Lord, the liar, the lunatic, and that if he wasn't really who he said he was, then he was not a good teacher. You know, so there's something patronizing that we tend to say of Jesus. And, you know, doesn't really, it's not an option he really left open to us. You know, anybody claiming to be God who wasn't God would be a lunatic or a liar, but not a good teacher. Yeah. So he's being a little patronizing and a little missing the point, but he is being very, very polite and deferential. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't you love the way the Lord cuts right to the point? It must have been disconcerting to hold a conversation with him in some respects because you come up to him and you're laying out the groundwork and you're making the introductions and, you know, as they often do in the East, kind of working into this thing slowly. And Jesus cuts right to the chase and tells you exactly what you need to hear. And you kind of go, whoa, rocks you back a little bit. Yeah. I just love the way he does that. But the message is we all need a new birth from above. I like combining the two. See, the Greek word translated again can be either again or from above. It has both meanings. Um, Jesus has a fondness for double meanings. We saw that with in the incident in the temple. You know, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. With his fondness for double meanings, I think he probably meant both. Um, Nicodemus, of course, focused on again. And... Many translations do. I like the Amplified Bible attempts to capture both meanings by saying, born again, parentheses, anew, from above, close parentheses. 
or uh, someone suggested the translation, I like this one a lot, reborn from above. I think that captures both very well also. But unless you have been born again or from above or reborn from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. Imagine how that hit Nicodemus. You know, you can't see it. Barclay says you can have no experience of the kingdom of God. Uh, The Amplified says he cannot ever see, know, be acquainted with, and experience the kingdom of God. By the way, if you don't want to study Greek by an Amplified Bible, it's almost as good. Uh, (laughs) It really is. It just goes on and on and on. Now, that would have shocked Nicodemus to the core. You see, the rabbis held that all Jews would take part in Messiah's kingdom. Quote, all Israel have a portion in the world to come. And new birth terminology wasn't totally foreign to them, but it was used for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They said that a Gentile convert to Judaism, a man who became a proselyte, is, quote, like a child newly born. So they had that that figure of speech, but only when referring to Gentiles converting to Judaism, not to Jews. So... To consider a new birth or a rebirth necessary for a Jew to see Messiah's kingdom would have been incomprehensible to Nicodemus. His head's doubtless swimming. Nonetheless, the new birth is absolutely essential, no matter what your background. doesn't matter. You may have a godly, godly heritage. God has no grandkids. Yeah, he only has children. Your parents may be the best Christians in the world doesn't matter. Yeah. So Nicodemus asked his first question. As Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now he shows by this answer that he really doesn't get it. Okay. See, as Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual things are spiritually appraised, or spiritually discerned. You ever find yourself wondering how a brilliant person can come up with really, really dumb stuff? Okay. I'll pick on some my my fellow Bible scholars because I, I, you know, I've read you know some liberal theologians sometimes. The guys obvious they impress you with the brilliance of their mind, but obviously somebody's not plugged in you know to the spiritual internet here, and they're not getting it. They don't get the message. Um, you know, it's just really incredible, the stuff that they come up with. Well, how does that happen? Because things are spiritually discerned. And Nicodemus was a brilliant man. Influential, successful, well-taught, intellectual. And he doesn't get it. He just, you know, what's the phrase? Lost as a goose? Yeah, <laughs> in this particular instance. He missed the implication of birth from above and he fixated on the again aspect and he's going, well, I can't do that. I'm an old man. How am I supposed to shrink and get back in there? I can't do that. You know, that's ridiculous. So Jesus explained it to him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So two births are necessary to enter the kingdom of God. First, you have to be, quote, close quote, born of water. Second, Spirit. Now, born of water um, has caused a lot of ink to be spilled. Uh, <laughs> okay. And probably a lot of forest to be chopped down for the, for the paper. Um, so we're going to take a second to, to look at that in detail. Some see in it a reference to water baptism. Okay. Now, with all due respect, I think that's reading something into the text that's not in the context. They weren't having a conversation about baptism. Okay. Uh, he does obviously know the word baptism. He talked about John the Baptist in the first chapter, and yet he doesn't say baptism. And John, very explicitly throughout his gospel, over and over, 90 some odd times, states that simple trust in Jesus Christ is the only thing necessary for salvation. Now, it's funny, if baptism was an additional condition, why didn't he mention that someplace else? Okay? And then you have Paul's statement to the Corinthians that God didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And baptism is clearly something different. Now, I don't say that to disparage baptism. I am all for baptism. Jesus said to be baptized. Yeah. And when Jesus says jump, the only appropriate question is how high. So it's uh, definitely the case you should get baptized. But baptism is not the means of salvation. Not physical baptism. Now, spirit, baptism with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, yeah, takes place at your conversion. But baptism uh, with water is not it. Um, it could be referring, and that kind of brings me to the next possibility, better possibility, could be referring to cleansing, the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's possible to translate this as born of water, even the Spirit. Okay. Now, if you do that, that would tie in with, oh, say, First uh, Peter 3.21, where Peter wrote, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. This is, by the way, the reason why you don't take half a verse and stop. Okay. Uh, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, so it's not how wet you get, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get it? It's not the water. Okay, and actually it's even clearer in the original because corresponding to that is the Greek word antitypos. It means anti-type. We have types and anti-types. So it's saying that water, water baptism is a type, a symbol of your salvation. It would be an even better translation. Not the removal of dirt from your flesh. It's not that you get clean that way, but you get clean in your conscience. That's salvation. Paul wrote uh, to Titus, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, okay? whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so some look at this and say, well, okay, that's what that's saying. It's talking about water in the sense of cleansing, and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
Paul, by the way, reminded the Corinthians that they had been washed. The first Corinthians six, uh, when they were sinning, he said, "You're better than that. You have been washed." Okay. Another possibility is that the water refers to the Word of God. Paul equated water and the Word when he said, "Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her." Ephesians five, uh, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So that cleansing from the Word of God. Uh, the Word is also presented in James 1.18 and 1 Peter uh, 1.23 as an agent in our spiritual birth. So that's possible also. The problem I have with both of those last two, though, is that Nicodemus would have had zero chance of understanding those metaphors. Matter of fact, you may have noticed I'm referring oftentimes to subsequent Christian writings. So not even the sayings of our Lord himself. So, though I think there's a grain of truth to that, I don't think that's the message either. I think the simplest explanation, and using a dictative logic called Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is most likely to be true. Uh, simplest explanation is being born of water probably refers to physical birth and the release of the amniotic fluid. Yeah. So the comparison between water and spirit would exactly match the comparison in the next verse between flesh and spirit. There'd be exact correspondence there if that's the interpretation. And the context in the previous verse was physical birth. Remember, Nicodemus, how can I go back and get born again? So that seems the best interpretation for me. Um, but certainly no reason to take it as water baptism. That's an immense operation of reading something into it that's not there. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If your source is flesh, what do you get? Flesh. Yes. If your source is spirit, you get spirit. If you're, uh, you know, if it's the offspring of a rabbit, it's going to be a rabbit. <laughs> It's not going to be a mouse. It's not going to be a dog. It's going to be a rabbit. You know, flesh leads to flesh. Physical birth, as Barclay says, physical birth can only beget a physical creature. Spiritual birth begets a spiritual creature. I think that's a good translation, too. So that makes the same comparison, then, as we just had in the previous verse. The phrase, born of water, corresponds to born of the flesh. The phrase, spirit, corresponds to born of the spirit. And this one. So the two match perfectly. And as I often say, the three most important rules in interpreting the Bible are context, context, context. If you look at what's going on around it, then you're probably going to get the right idea. Um, Actually, I, I love my New American Standard as a translation, but the one thing I don't like about it is the format because each verse is laid out separately and it encourages you to take them out of context. And that's a bad habit. So. Then Jesus said, Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus was in fact amazed. And like, what? What is he saying? Uh, it's interesting here, there's actually a switch between singular and plural. And the King James catches it if you know uh, if you understand sixteen eleven style English. Do not, it says, marvel not that I said unto thee. That's singular. Okay? Thee, thou, etc. is singular. Ye, that's plural. You translate ye into Texas as y'all. 
you know, y'all. Y'all must be born again, okay? There's one old preacher used to, almost every sermon, you know, expound on you must be born again. And somebody asked him once why he did that. And he said, because you must be born again. But anyway, <laughs> okay. The um, Christian Counselor's New Testament catches that also. It says you and you all. Uh, I, y'all is really a handy phrase in, in, in Texan. You know, if you don't have that, there is no unambiguous you plural in English. Uh, that's something we really lost. Yeah. But um, anyway, I told you that all of you must be born again is, uh, is another translation. And you must all be born anew from above is the amplified on that one. So there's few translations caught it, but very few. Very few. There actually is a switch there. He's not just saying, he's saying, Nicodemus, it's not just you. It's everyone. All people everywhere in all cultures must be born again from above. Must be. Okay? It doesn't matter who you are. Now, he goes on to explain it with another, with an earthly example. Because Nicodemus is going, how can this be? I can't understand the mechanism. How does this work? Um, and you know what? I don't know how that works either. I just know it works. Because Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As a word play, because spirit and wind are the same word in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. So it works in four different languages. You can't miss this one. Um, it's it's uh, you know the same combination there that they mean the same thing. The Greek word for for wind is pneuma, and we get pneumatic from that pneumonia, that sort of thing. So, but what happens? The wind is mysterious and invisible. Anybody see the wind lately? No. You may see stuff in the wind: water vapor, uh, sticks, stones. If it's a tornado, cows, cars, you know, but <laughs> houses, <laughs> but you don't see the wind. You never see the wind. You see the wind's effect. Okay? In the same way, you don't see the Holy Spirit, but you see the Holy Spirit's effect. That's being born again, Jesus said. It's mysterious. You're not going to get an example of exactly how that mechanism works. Okay? You know, the Holy Spirit invades this area of your brain and touches this neuron. You're not going to get one of those. By the way, if we think we understand the the wind today, try following the weather reports for a while. (laughs) I've noticed what they do on the Weather Channel. They're really sneaky about it because they'll give a report, uh, a forecast one night, and the next morning if you check it again and something's happened, that it's changed, they just quietly change it. They don't admit. There's no retractions printed. Oh, we had it wrong. No. Yeah, very rare that they would do that. They just, you know, they just change it. And, you know, hope nobody notices. It's nice when you can get away with that. Uh, But anyway, so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's still confused. Poor guy. So he asked Jesus to explain, how does it work? And Jesus rebukes him mildly. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Yeah, he's one of the preeminent teachers in Israel, apparently, this guy. I said, you see his name all over the place in Jewish writings, so yeah, he was, he was a big deal. And he's saying, You don't get it? Come on now. Yeah, it's a rebuke. It's a general rebuke, but it's a rebuke. 
And Jesus doesn't call him a teacher in Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. The quintessential teacher. And you don't get it? Now there are a few Old Testament scriptures that should have come to mind. Isaiah 44.3 I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Or Ezekiel 37.9 and 10 talking about the spirit and coming back to life said then he said to me prophesy to the breath the spirit the ruach in Hebrew prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may come to life so I prophesied as he commanded to me and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army but clearest of all I think is this one from Ezekiel 36 Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Very, very similar. Not you know, not exactly, but very, very similar. Things that should have you know, his mind while it's spinning should have got traction on a few scriptures and gone, Oh yeah, something like that is predicted. Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly I say to you By the way, that doubling of truly or amen is for emphasis. That's the way you do the the, the comparative and the and the superlative and adjectives in Hebrew you just repeat them. Like holy, holy, holy. That means most holy. Okay, But anyway, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, my testimony concerns that which I have personal knowledge of. That's quite a claim. He's revealing a lot more of himself to Nicodemus here. Um, And he says, I have personal knowledge of this, and in spite of that, they wouldn't accept his testimony. Now, that's not an intellectual problem. That is flat out rejecting the witness. Okay, That's, That's not saying I have no witnesses. That's saying, I don't like it, and I'm rejecting it. And that's what Jesus is saying the Jewish authorities are doing. You, know, so you, as a group, are rejecting my witness. And I know what I'm talking about. I was there. It's not an intellectual problem here. If I told you earthly things, and you don't believe. Well, Jesus had, in fact, used earthly examples. And Nicodemus didn't get it, did he? Therefore, what chance was there Nicodemus was going to understand deeper truths? Very, very slight, I think. But no one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this is kind of a difficult sentence, but to put it all together, I think it basically is saying that the pre-existent Son, God the Son, was in heaven before he came to earth. Therefore he knows that about which he's talking. And notice also, instead of just letting Nicodemus slide with calling him a good teacher, he's beginning to interject, by the way, I've got this title, the Son of Man. Okay, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's clearly messianic. It is not, you know, not being modest. You know, by the way, I'm the son of man. 
Okay, so he was beginning to reveal more of himself to Nicodemus. Now, he goes on and gives one last example, and, and he quotes scripture, which I think is a, a good thing. He's going, Nicodemus should have caught this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Or whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You can translate that either way. Um, Moses and the serpent. That's an Old Testament incident from the book of Numbers. Uh, Let's look at that real quick. It's not very large. It's uh, chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. Do a little sword drill. Got to keep your Bibles number. <laughs> Numbers 21, 6 through 9. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Why? Well, Israel had been rebellious again. You know, they did, were doing this repeatedly. And so God spanked them, basically. Uh, so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord in you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded. There's this repeated pattern. They rebel. God, God chastises them. They go to Moses and say, We're sorry. Please pray for us. Moses prays for them. Okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it will come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Now that's kind of interesting instructions. Uh, matter of fact, we're told later he had trouble in subsequent Israel because they took that serpent and made it an idol. Uh, but God told Moses to take and make a copper serpent and put it up on a pole, on a standard, and said, the instructions are, if you're bit, look at the serpent. Now, if you're of a rationalistic bent of mind, you'd probably say, well, what good is that going to do me? Right? I mean, looking at serpents never healed anybody, you know, etc., etc. Well, yeah, this time it would. Yeah, so Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, it wasn't what your eyeballs were doing. It was that you trusted the word that God said. And what was that serpent a sign of? A sign of their sin, right? That was the judgment that was coming on them because of their sin was these fiery serpents, whatever those were. Plenty of bad things you can step on in the desert so uh, <laughs> you know Paul wrote to the Corinthians he that is God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him 2 Corinthians 5.21 that's substitutionary atonement in a nutshell you know he gets our, our bad stuff our sin you know and pays the penalty for that we get credited with his righteousness. I think we definitely got the better end of that deal. But that's the exchange. Okay? In the same way, the symbol uh, up on the, sta- on the standard was the symbol of their sin, the symbol, symbol of the judgment on their sin. Well, Jesus said that the Son of Man would be lifted up the same way. How was Jesus killed? Crucifixion, which involves raising you up, you know, on a piece of wood. Greek word translated lifted up is interesting because it's got a double meaning too. It means both to lift up spatially, lift up, raise high, 
And it also means to cause enhancement in honor, fame, position, power, or fortune. To exalt. Both words. And uh, one scholar has noted that this is a powerful double meaning referring not only to Jesus being lifted up on the cross of wood, but also his exaltation before all humanity and his coming exaltation to the presence of God. (laughs) See, both are lifting up. And so the Son of Man definitely is to be lifted up. Yeah, in both ways. Now there's a purpose to that. It says, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Or whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Greek word translated believed is a present participle. It's being used as a noun here, actually more of a gerund, to, uh, to say the person who believes. That's why it's whoever believes. Um, it means to consider something to be true and then therefore worthy of one's trust. We say, well, I believe it's going to be stormy this evening. That's not the sense that it's used. It's not like, well, I think maybe it might happen to sort of kind of be that way. This is, I believe this is a trustworthy, this is trustworthy, therefore I rely on it. I trust in it. Okay? Um, Weiss translates that, everyone who places his trust in him. Williams, everyone who trusts in him. The Amplified Bible, got to love this. Everyone who believes in him, who cleaves to him, trusts him, and relies on him. That leave any doubt in anybody's mind the meaning of belief? Okay. <laughs> Those people have, present tense verb, eternal life. It's a present possession. It's not pie in the sky by and by when you die. It's a present possession of anyone who trusts Christ. It's a quality of life too, not just quantity. You know, being around forever happens to the people in hell. But it's the quality of life as well. It's God's own life. So that's what accrues to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Simply believe. No other condition. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, some, yeah, the red letters may end in some of your Bibles at verse 15. Um, there's some debate about that. If this is John's commentary, then it's inspired commentary. It's still the Word of God. But I think it's a unit. I think everything goes together here. And personally, I'm convinced the red letters ought to go all the way through to verse 21, uh, that this is Jesus' statement too. Now, while the cross is grounded in the purpose of God to provide eternal life, that purpose is grounded on the love of God. The agape love of God. The word translated so refers to degree, extent, or manner. How much did God love? Enough to send His Son. How many did He love? The world. And how did He love? What's the manner? Sacrificially. He loved so much he gave. This is not warm. God had warm, fuzzy feelings for mankind, you know. And so he thought happy thoughts about it. No. This is, he loved so much that he gave. And Jesus, again, is revealing more of himself because what he tells them is his only son, only begotten, actually, the Greek word means only one of its class, unique. Um, what you know, the Amplified says, only begotten, unique Son. So it's His one and only Son, His unique Son. God has many children, but He only has one Jesus. There's only one unique, uh, one and only Jesus. 
And all one has to do to be saved is trust in Jesus. All one has to be do to be lost is nothing. It's nothing. See, in this last section he says just a few things about God's judgment. He said that God's did not send God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His purpose in sending Jesus the first time was salvation, not judgment. And this tells us something about the very character of God, doesn't it? God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel says. God wants everyone to be saved. Paul wrote to, uh, to Timothy and Peter wrote uh, also. That God's will, God's desire is for everyone to be saved. But, but God does judge. And on Messiah's second coming, he's going to come as a judge. But the first coming, no, he came to save, not to judge. He who believes in him is not judged. So Jesus promises all believers they won't come into God's judgment. He said the same thing in chapter 5. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has has passed out of death into life. There's no judgment awaiting the believer for salvation. Rewards, yes, but for salvation, no. Absolutely not. And he who does not believe, Jesus says, has been judged already because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Um, That Greek verb translated not believed is in the perfect tense. And so it means basically they've taken a permanent attitude of refusal. They've done that in the past and it continues. The person who has not believed in the only begotten Son of of God, in the name of the only begotten Son of God, in the name means in the character. In rabbinic Judaism, a person's name represents his essence. So the unbeliever is not awaiting trial. They're already under God's sentence. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. This is the basis for the indictment, literally. Mankind can't say they love darkness because that's all they ever knew. The light came into the world. But the majority loved darkness. They were devoted to it. The word love there is agapaho. It's love in the deepest sense. They're devoted to it. The reason for that devotion? Because their deeds are evil. It is a truism that a man's morality dictates his theology. And everyone who does evil, Jesus said, hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Evildoers hate the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. They want, are more interested in appearing good than being good. And light exposes it. You don't want to come into the light then because you don't want to see that you're really empty. You're really, your deeds are evil, they're worthless. So the difference between people is not their worthiness, not whether they've sinned. The difference is the response to the light. Pure and simple. On the other hand, he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, walking in the light is something that actually 
I borrow from First John here because it's prominent in the first chapter of First John is often misunderstood as being sinless perfection. And that's kind of almost funny because First John 1 John 1.7 says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, it, uh, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So if it was sinless perfection, you wouldn't need the cleansing. You know? So it's not talking about that. What it is talking about is sadly believers are also capable of worthless, worthless acts and preferring darkness. But the corrective for that is walking in the light, which means openly and honestly confessing your sin, receiving God's forgiveness, and cleansing. That's how you walk in the light, according to 1 John. When we're walking in the light, any good works that we might have come from where? They're wrought from, with God. Or as the Amplified says, wrought with God, divinely prompted, done with God's help, and dependence upon Him. Okay? So it's not that we're in any way justified before God with our works, but rather that we needn't fear the light because we can, we can come into the light, have our sins exposed, and receive cleansing and forgiveness. And when God works things in our lives, woohoo! Let the world see it. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works. So, morality dictates theology. So, what does, this, what does this tell us? This passage teaches us about Jesus, that the pre-existent Son was in heaven before He came to earth. Therefore, He knows that which He's talking about. He's the Son of Man, the Messiah, and not just a good teacher. And that He knew that He had to die for us. About us, it tells us that we all, in all cultures and from all backgrounds, need a new birth from above in order to participate in God's kingdom. Difference between people is the response to the light. And one's morality can dictate one's theology. All you have to do to be saved is trust in Jesus Christ. All you have to do to be lost is nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you moved John by your spirit to write down this conversation that that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Thank you for the truth revealed in this about the necessity of a spiritual birth, the necessity of trusting in in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and the danger of our morality dictating our theology in a negative way. For all these encouragements and all these warnings, we give you praise. We pray, Lord, that your gospel would take hold in our heart and that we would have a burning desire to share this love and what you so loved us, to share that with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.